Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Is there a sin that is so heinous and egregious that the one who commits it shall not and shall never be forgiven? The Bible speaks of only one such sin called the unforgivable sin. The matter is clearly an important one, for the Lord saw to it to mention it three times in the New Testament, in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 12. In this episode, I will make an attempt to explain what the unforgivable sin is to the best of my ability. I say to the best of my ability because surely, when Jesus talks about the subject, it is one of his difficult-to-interpret teachings. So, by God's grace, I will proceed. Today, we will focus on the verses in Matthew, since there we have the most content. I will begin at Matthew 12:22 to provide context. So Matthew 12, verses 22 to 30 says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man who was unable to speak talked and could see. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan is casting out Satan, he has become divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if by Beelzebub I cast out the demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? The one who is not with me is against me, and the one who does not gather with me scatters. That was the context. Next, in verses 31 to 32, Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin. He says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is the unforgivable sin? Jesus tells us clearly and plainly, it is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Whoever blasphemes the Spirit will neither be forgiven now nor in the age to come. That means they have no chance at redemption. This is a big deal because God is telling us that right now counts forever and there is an act that guarantees a person's place in hell for eternity. So, we now know what the unforgivable sin is, but what does blasphemy against the Holy Spirit actually mean? I will make two assertions and provide evidence for them in what follows. The first assertion is that if you are troubled about having committed the unforgivable sin, you can be certain you are not guilty of it. The second assertion defines what the unforgivable sin is. It refers to when a person deliberately rejects Christ and glories in his rejection of him. The person who is guilty of the sin not only doesn't believe in Christ, he doesn't want to believe in him with a determined unbelief. 
the blasphemer treats Christ with scorn and derision while turning his back on him. The person who blasphemes the Spirit is self-contented and therefore gloats in their rejection of God. Those were the assertions. Now it's time to prove them. Let's now begin to examine the scriptures to gain clarity. First, in Matthew 12:31, Jesus begins his discussion in a profound way. He says, Therefore I say to you. You and I say amen all the time, but what's interesting here is that God himself says the Greek equivalent of amen before he says anything else. Of course, amen comes from a Hebrew word that means truth or it is true. This is why if a preacher says something you agree with, you say amen. The point is that Jesus begins his statement by saying amen or now hear this, what I am about to say is true. Christ says this introductory phrase as he seems to turn from disputing the Pharisees to instructing and warning his followers. Next, Jesus says, Every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Christ then goes on to clarify in the next verse that no forgiveness will be given either in this age or in the age to come. Throughout the New Testament, Christ only talks about two ages, this one and the next one. This means that for those who commit the unforgivable sin, they will never be pardoned, either now or in the age to come. Christ also makes clear that it is not blasphemy in general that is unforgivable, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is more heinous than all other sins. Notice here what the unforgivable sin is not. Murder, adultery, idolatry, false worship, or Sabbath breaking, just to give a few examples. Furthermore, in these verses, Christ refutes the error of those who suggest that every voluntary sin or that which is committed against conscience is unpardonable. Christ tells us that what is unpardonable is a specific single sin. So, the unforgivable sin is a specific type of blasphemy against the third person of the Trinity. So, what is blasphemy? Properly defined, blasphemy is reviling, malicious talk, or slander against the Lord. It's not against an idea or an institution. Blasphemy is a sin in which a person speaks a word against God. The Old Testament penalty for blasphemy was death by stoning, Leviticus 24.16. Blasphemy is thus a verbal sin, one that is committed with the mouth or with the pen. A blasphemer therefore weaponizes language against the Lord and uses their words to desecrate God's holy character by insulting him, mocking him, or dishonoring him. As R.C. Sproul once said, a simple way to think about blasphemy is that it is the opposite of praise. In praise, you look up at God and use your words to glorify him. In blasphemy, you look down on God and use your words to defame him. How then can we develop a biblical understanding of what blasphemy against the Spirit means? After all, Christ says that every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. God is telling us that there is something particular about blasphemy against the Spirit. This is where the writings of Jonathan Edwards are tremendously helpful. The great theologian of old helps us to understand the unpardonable sin by having us first observe that in order to speak a word against anyone, you must first have a knowledge about that person. 
I can't speak a word against someone I don't know anything about or of whom I don't have in my mind anything belonging to that person that distinguishes them from the rest. Without knowledge, it is impossible to develop an opinion, either good or bad. So, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit means a person begins with some type of working knowledge of God. Those who blaspheme the Spirit are not regenerate, but start with some type of light or illumination that opens their eyes to the reality that God is God, God shows unmerited favor to sinners, and that out of love, God sent His Son to redeem those who could not save themselves. So, blasphemy begins with knowledge about its object. Second, with knowledge, the person who commits the unforgivable sin forms an opinion about God and is convicted of that opinion. But more than that, said opinion is attended to with malice. At this point, a person is fully aware of the spite in their heart. They are sensible that the one they revile is God's spirit. They know in their hearts that God's truth is in fact correct, yet they suppress the truth and act against conscience in order to manufacture an opinion about God that opposes His love, grace, and trustworthiness. Now why would anyone form such a resolute, negative opinion about God? Because they despise Him. Now let us remember that blasphemy is a verbal sin and at this point the person has not yet committed the unforgivable sin because they have still stopped their mouth and haven't verbalized what they think in their heart. Thoughts, words, and actions go together. The heart is the root, the language is the fruit. And so, third and finally, when a person is fully persuaded by their own vile contempt, their inward hatred of God is expressed presumptuously with blasphemy. Here, the blasphemer is so captivated by their own disdain for the Lord, they are no longer restrained by any fear or awe and begin to presume against the Lord himself. Hence, the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit willfully reproaches that which should illumine their mind, warm their heart, and conquer their will. It is therefore no mystery why God would not bestow saving grace upon the person who despises it. It is crucial to understand what the Spirit does to grasp the diabolical nature of the unforgivable sin. When we look into the economy of the Trinity, it is evident that the Spirit is the agent responsible for teaching us spiritual things. See John 14, 15-17 and 16, 12-15. The Spirit also pours out the unfathomable love of God to us, Romans 5, 5. He is the helper that Christ sent after His ascension. John 14.26, Romans 8.9, Romans 8.26, and Galatians 5.22-23. When the Spirit causes someone to be born again, He opens their eyes to God's truth. The person is convicted of said truth and consequently trusts God based on a sincerely held belief. Particularly, the Spirit reveals Christ to us. He is the person who enables us to have faith in Jesus, for no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12.3. This is the core of the matter and what particularly makes the unforgivable sin one against the Spirit. It is against what He has effectually revealed to the person and what the person sincerely knows is true. And what do they know is true? That Christ is the Son of God. 
And what makes this sin especially egregious is that it is against the whole trinity by implication. If the Spirit convicts a person's conscience that Jesus is the Messiah and said person suppresses that truth, they not only reject the Spirit, they also subsequently reject the one who the Spirit testifies about, Christ, and they also reject the one who sent the Messiah, the Father. This is made clear in Matthew 12, 22-32, where the Pharisees were said to blaspheme the Spirit with words that denied Christ. Blasphemy against the Spirit is not a sin of ignorance, but willful rebellion against the truth. Jonathan Edwards summarizes the mechanics of the unforgivable sin in Miscellanies. Quote, Therefore, when men blaspheme the Holy Ghost, they express spite against something that they have an idea or notion of in their minds that is particularly pertaining to and distinguishing of this divine person. Therefore, I determine thus, that those who blaspheme the Holy Ghost unpardonably express their spite against the Holy Ghost with respect to those acts of His wherein consists His nature and office, that is to say, divine love, expressing the love of God or that which has respect to His gracious and holy acts. It is no matter whether they have a distinct notion of a person of the Holy Ghost if they, out of malice, revile those things wherein his nature and work consists. End quote. Now that we have an idea of what the unforgivable sin is, let us return to the narrative in Matthew. What happened? In Matthew 12, 22-32, Christ does something in the power of the Holy Spirit. He heals a demon-possessed man. The truth of what God accomplished was made clear to everyone, and no one, not even the Pharisees, could deny that a miracle just happened. A man once blind and mute was now able to see and speak. Truly, this was a demonstration not only of God's power, but His love and grace. God set a man free from the tyranny of darkness and delivered him from captivity to a cruel enemy. But how did the Pharisees respond to this wonderful miracle? Did they praise God? No, they spoke out against God by saying, This man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Matthew 12, 24. You see, the Pharisees, out of malice, abhorred the Spirit by His expressing the love and mercy of God to a low and needy man. And the miracle validated the messenger, Jesus, as God's Messiah. The Pharisees had tangible, concrete proof of the power of God right in front of them. That an act of God just happened was undisputable. But what was their response? They denied the power of God contrary to undeniable evidence of God in their midst. The Pharisees committed the unpardonable sin when they expressed words that reflected not merely unbelief, but determined unbelief and defiant rejection of Christ as the Messiah after having seen all the evidence necessary to complete understanding. Their unbelief was so determined, they willfully refused to accept the implication of God's wondrous act, that this is the Son of David." So what did their willful rebellion compel them to do? They attributed divine work to the devil. As Matthew Henry writes, quote, No surmise could be more palpably vile than this, that he, who is truth itself, should be in combination with the father of lies to cheat the world. End quote. 
Who could convince the Pharisees of Christ when they accused him of teaming up with Satan? And while we're talking about Satan, it is worth mentioning that he is the prime example of the one who has committed the unforgivable sin. As James 2.19 tells us, the devil knows the truth about God and even knows more than most people do. By sight, he has experienced God in ways that human beings have not. But with said knowledge, what has Lucifer done? He has purposefully and willfully rebelled against God because that is who he hates. This is why Lucifer has said in his heart, I will ascend. I will make myself like the Most High. Isaiah 14, 14. This is also why he will be the spiritual force behind the beast of Revelation that opens his mouth to speak blasphemies against God. Revelation 13, 6. It is also important to note that in the last days, blasphemy will be an overriding characteristic of those who rebelliously and insolently oppose God. Revelation 16.9 and 17.3 I will close out this section by quoting John Calvin's comments on the unforgivable sin. Quote, Those persons sin and blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, who manifestly turn to his dishonor the perfections of God which have been revealed to him by the Spirit, in which his glory ought to be celebrated, and who, with Satan, their leader, are avowed enemies of the glory of God. We need not then wonder if for such sacrilege there is no hope of pardon, for they must be desperate who turn the medicine of salvation into a deadly venom. Those who reason in that manner do not sufficiently consider what a monstrous crime it is not only to profane intentionally the name of God, but to spit in his face when he is evidently before us. End quote. The unforgivable sin is not something that someone commits from ignorance. As it was said, the unforgivable sin involves active truth suppression. A person acts against a sufficiency. They do not fail to act because of a deficiency. And the Bible makes plain to us that a man will not be held accountable for what he truly does not know. The clearest evidence of this come from the lips of the Lord himself while he was on the cross. In Luke 23:43, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Clearly then, the Bible permits forgiveness for those who commit an egregious sin, yet are wholly unaware of the sin they are committing. This idea of invincible ignorance is also communicated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. There, the text says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me, because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was previously a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Let us remember that when he was known as Saul, Paul spent his days denying that Jesus is the Christ and actively sought out and killed Christians. At the time, Saul was a blasphemer and a violent aggressor, but he also genuinely believed that Jesus was not the Messiah. He acted ignorantly in unbelief and knew not what he was doing. His ignorance was invincible in the sense that he could not remove it by applying reasonable diligence. Why is that? Because he was blind to the truth. 
God is the one who literally and spiritually ended up opening his eyes to the light. See Acts chapter 9. So, with invincible ignorance, you generally don't know any better and can be excused on the plea of ignorance. Let me provide an example to illustrate. Let's say one day, all of a sudden, the Secretary of Transportation decides that all green lights mean stop and all red lights mean go. The secretary changes the rules in the middle of the night and there is no press release, so millions of people are clueless to this change. The following morning, when you get in your car and drive to work, when you see a green light, what do you do? You go because that's what you know. Consequently, if a cop stops you and tries to give you a ticket for running a green light, you can sincerely say, Officer, I had no idea I violated the traffic law because I didn't know a new law existed. The judge can then show mercy because a plea of ignorance is valid. However, when we talk about the unforgivable sin, it is not invincible ignorance, but rather vincible ignorance. Meaning, said ignorance could be removed only if the person applied reasonable diligence based on what is available to them. And, as we discussed, when talking about blasphemy against the Spirit, what is available to the person is a concrete knowledge of God. To go back to the traffic example, let's say you live in New York and decided to drive in California. The traffic rules are the same, so green means go and red means stop. If you now run a red light, you cannot plead ignorance because any reasonable person knows better and understands that basic traffic signals remain the same state to state. Thus, in this situation, you cannot be excused on the plea of ignorance. The judge will then say, guilty. Establishing this distinction between invincible and vincible ignorance helps us to further clarify why blasphemy against the Spirit exceeds all other sins. Certainly, it is not because the Spirit is higher than Christ, because all persons of the Trinity are the same in essence. Rather, it is because those who do rebel do so after the power and illumination of God has been revealed, and therefore, they cannot be excused on the plea of ignorance. The reason why is because their ignorance is vincible. What madness it is for grace to be the cause of shutting one's heart against the Lord. Additionally, God, the all-knowing judge, is also aware of what he revealed to a person, and thus he can judge justly when a person unreasonably rejects divine grace that opens their eyes to Christ. The man who blasphemes against the Spirit in essence slanders the gifts of the Spirit contrary to his own mind. Hence, in Matthew 12, God warns all who will hear not to fight against him with his own mercies. It must be noted that the unpardonable sin in no way diminishes the power or the sufficiency of what Christ accomplished on Calvary. His work remains eternally sufficient. Yet, while one man is saved by faith, another is condemned by his unbelief. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unpardonable not for any defect in Christ, but because it inevitably leaves the sinner impenitent. The haziness of the unforgivable sin becomes clearer and clearer when we use other scripture lenses to analyze Matthew 12, 22-32. These two lenses can be found in Romans 1 and Hebrews 6. Romans 1 helps us to understand the depraved mind which characterizes the person who commits the unforgivable sin. 
There, the Apostle Paul clarifies that the problem with man is never ignorance of the truth, but rather suppression of it. Romans 1, 18-19 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. In other words, ungodliness and unrighteousness are never a matter of a lack of information. Rather, it is a vile act of rejection as a person takes the truth and pushes it down lower and lower, vainly hoping to conceal its light. The consequences of such truth suppression are that God gives the person exactly what they want, less of him. As a result, the Lord gives a person over to themselves. See Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. That is, God punishes contempt of His grace by the hardening of the hearts of the reprobate so that they never have any desire toward repentance. They never have a desire for repentance because no repentance is exactly what they want. No one commits the unforgivable sin kicking and screaming. So for those who suppress the truth, God gives them over to themselves. And because of this judicial abandonment, the person goes deeper and deeper into sin because the farther away you move from the light, the darker things get. As William Hendrickson writes in The Exposition of the Gospel according to Matthew, quote, When a man has become so hardened, so that he has made up his mind not to pay any attention to the Spirit, he has placed himself on the road that leads to perdition. And the end result of truth suppression and rebellion against God is what? The end result is a depraved mind that begets numerous tongue sins in which the person weaponizes language against God. Here's what Romans 1, 28-32 says. Pay attention to the tongue sins characteristic of those with a depraved mind. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, people having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. The point is that Romans 1 helps us to understand that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a fruit of a depraved mind. This mind stands in direct contrast to those who are born again, who are new creatures, furnished with new hearts and new minds. See Ezekiel 36, 26-27, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and Ephesians 4, 23-25. The regenerated mind is progressively being transformed and does not spite God, but loves and enjoys Him. Hence, a blessed hope is that anyone who is born again cannot commit the unforgivable sin. See Romans 8, 29-30. The other passage I will discuss is Hebrews 6, verses 1-8. to This is another difficult-to-interpret passage in the New Testament, and many commentators vary on what they think the text means. Cognizant of this, I think in these verses, the author is referring to the unforgivable sin. 
that is, those who have partook of the Holy Spirit and were enlightened but were not regenerated and ended up acting on what was truly in their hearts all along, a contempt of God. As a result, they fall away. The author writes that for these individuals, it is impossible to restore them to repentance. And why would that be? Because they committed the unpardonable sin of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. Of course, their restoration is not impossible for God, but it is impossible for the person with a depraved mind to respond with faith. Here is what Hebrews 6, 1-8 says. I hope that with everything discussed so far, what the text says is readily evident. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and about the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. By grace, we are thankful that Christ gave us precisely what we needed for life and godliness, nothing more, nothing less. This recognition is made acknowledging that there are still some questions about the unforgivable sin that we don't know, and that's okay because we're not supposed to know. For example, in Matthew 12, 22-32, it is written that Jesus knew the Pharisees' thoughts. No human can read someone else's mind, they can only read their own. So, without knowing a person's mind and what they truly know about Christ, how can you or I determine if their blasphemy qualifies as against the Spirit? This is just one example of an area in which we dare not tread. In regards to the unforgivable sin, Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, quote, Christ's warning is something like the notice you see put up on certain great men's estates, man traps and spring guns set here. If you go round the mansion and say to the owner, If you please, sir, will you tell me where the man traps and spring guns are? He will say, No. Why should you want to know where they are? You keep from trespassing, and then it will not matter to you where they are. That very indistinctness about the warning is part of the persuasive power which surrounds it. End quote. Spurgeon's words are fitting because the purpose of our Christian life isn't to dwell on the unforgivable sin, it is to glorify God. It's not to perseverate on the one thing we ought not to do, it is to focus on all the other things God has called us to do. Christ is the ultimate concern and everything else is secondary. The way of salvation is paved with faith, not worry. As it says in Habakkuk 2.4, but the righteous one will live by his faith. The final encouragement I will leave you with is that if you are troubled about having committed the unforgivable sin, you can be certain you are not guilty of it. Why? Because you recognize that God is God and are concerned that you may have offended Him. You are troubled and unhappy over the fact that you offended a holy God. 
This is clearly not the person who is actively rebelling against the Lord, for the reprobate person is delighted in their spite. Again, as Matthew Henry writes, quote, We have reason to think that none are guilty of the unforgivable sin who believe that Christ is the Son of God and sincerely desire to have part in His merit and mercy. And those who have fear they have committed this sin give a good sign that they have not. End quote. Each desire to be right with God is evidence you have not committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. God is good and his steadfast love has opened the door to all sinners who come to him. It was our Lord who said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus also said in Matthew 11 verses 28 to 30, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable and my burden is light. As far as the east is from the west, so the Lord has removed our sins from us. Psalm 103.12, also see Isaiah 1.18 and Micah 7.18. The blessed assurance of our beloved Savior is that the greatness of our sin shall serve as no obstacle to our acceptance with God if we truly believe in the gospel. Beloved, do not focus your attention on the one sin that God will not pardon. Rather, keep your eyes on the Redeemer who was pierced for your transgressions so that He could justly forgive the seemingly endless oceans of sins against Him. The Lord sent His Son out of love, and it is God's love that is the anchor of our souls. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.